We're going to be reading from Titus 1, verse 5 to 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you may be put in order what was left unfinished and appoint lead elders in every town as I directed to you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For, de- for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of, one of Crete's own prophets has, has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted, do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. When I first moved to Newcastle, nobody really wanted to live where I live currently. I live in Mayfield, uh, and I maintain that it's always been a fantastic place to live. But that's not the view of other people. Sure, we've had our, uh, you know, we had a shooting in our street. Uh, We lived next door to a drug dealer for around about 13 years. He's now gone. Uh, But, you know, that just all kind of adds flavour to the space that you live in, right? And now, there's actually no way that we could buy a house in the street that we live in. It's probably one of the scabbiest streets in Mayfield still, but it's, it's not what it used to be. And part of that's all to do with city renewal, the renewal of Newcastle City. No longer is Newcastle City a hole next to a great beach, but the whole city precinct has been revitalised. It's been renewed. Newcastle City has poured incredible amounts of money into the precinct. And Mayfield just happens to be fairly close to the city, and so we kind of get caught up in this renewal project. And Mayfield, as a result, has gentrified. Uh, You see young mums now pushing their high-end fancy pants prams down the street in Mayfield, and that's just something you never used to see 10 or 15 years ago. But all of that renewal is surface level. How do you really make a mark on Newcastle? Because that's what we're on about, right? We want to see God given the honour and glory and praise he deserves in the city of Newcastle and the region of Lake Macquarie. So how do you do that? Well, Paul's strategy in Crete was to land there with the gospel. And we don't actually know a lot about Paul and his church planning endeavours in Crete, in Crete but, but it seems that through his work there, that there were these churches, that kind of these house churches that kind of sprung up around the island of Crete. And then he leaves Titus there with a task, 
a task of appointing elders in all of the various towns sprinkled over the island of Crete. And so that's the strategy, plant churches and then bring leadership to those churches. Have a look in verse five there, this is what he says. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. So Paul's mission strategy is to preach the gospel and then to organize Christians into local churches with local leadership. And look, there are books and books and books written from these verses and a plethora of other verses from the New Testament that are all about church governance and church structures and how you should run and organize your church. And we're not going to talk a lot about that here today. But what's worth knowing is that there are a couple of different words here in Titus used to talk about these leaders. They're translated into the English as elder and overseer. And over the years, different churches and denominations have tried to read into these words some sort of denominational hierarchy. And so the Greek word for an elder is the word presbyteros, which is where the Presbyterian church gets its name, because they're all about churches that are run by elders. In the same way, the Greek word for overseer is episkopos, where we get the word bishop from. And the Anglican church has this hierarchy where the bishop kind of sits over multiple different churches in a region. But looking at what Paul writes to Titus, he's just using two words, one that means an older person and the other means a, a manager or a coordinator to describe the same role, that is a leader in the church family. See, God wants every church, every local family of Christians to have appointed leaders to have someone, to have some people who are, who are entrusted with the responsibility of caring for and overseeing the family. Now, if you're new or you're visiting here at Hunter Bible Church, you might like to ask more questions about our church governance structure at some stage. But to be honest, Paul is not super concerned with that here in Titus. Paul's central concern is the type of leader. He's concerned about character, not so much the structure of the leadership team. Now, that's really strange to us in our modern world. In our world, we like to think that there's a divide between a leader's private life and his public life. That's kind of what we, we, we say. Uh, but, but at the same time, the media and politicians are constantly digging around in, in people's private lives in order to defame their opponents on the public platform. We kind of want it both ways in our world. But in the church, we can't have this public and private divide. Paul's emphasis when he talks about leadership is identifying leaders who have proved themselves as disciples, not just proving themselves as good organizers or good speakers or people who are winsome. No, he's looking for character and conviction. The first thing he says is that leaders are to be blameless in their home. Have a look there in verse, verse six. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, blameless here doesn't mean entirely without fault. In fact, it would actually be kind of damaging for leaders themselves or, or, or the people they lead to think that the leaders are perfect or, 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 or entirely good all of the time. But blameless does mean to have a good reputation, 
a reputation against which an accusation cannot be made. And blamelessness in the home means being faithful in marriage or faithful in singleness. Particularly here, it's talking about male leadership in the home, but it goes for anyone in church leadership. What Paul wants is men and women who uphold and celebrate God's view of marriage in their own lives, whether you're married or single. It means leaders of God's church also need to be shown to be discipling their children at home if they have children. So in 1 verse 6, he says, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, the word children here implies small children. Of course, there's a situation where, you know, of course, after years and years of faithful, uh, godly leadership in the home, teenagers or young adults uh, will begin to ask questions. Perhaps they will doubt. Perhaps they will choose to actually reject the faith. And, and that's heartbreaking and, and not something we want to see take place in our church family. But I don't think Paul is actually looking to exclude leaders on that basis. He's looking for leaders who have shown themselves to be faithful in the way that they lead their families. Now, why? Why does the, the home life matter? Well, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says in a similar passage that's talking about leadership, he says this. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? See, the, the way a man leads his own family will tell you a lot about the way that he leads God's family. If he's domineering in the home, he's likely to be domineering in the church. If he fails to take responsibility in the home, he's likely to shirk responsibility in the church. And so Paul says to Titus, the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in the home. Now that's confronting, isn't it? Because for many of us, Home is where we make our mistakes. Home is often the place where we kind of let our guard down. For many of us, it's the place where we are most likely to sin. Because behind, behind closed doors, it can be very easy to sin in secret. Can I, can I say, if you're not married and you want to get married, then please marry someone who will encourage you to grow and not settle for ungodliness. If you're married and you, and, and you know that you or your spouse are actually slipping into secret sins, get, get the help that you need. Get together and talk to a trusted friend or a pastor or a marriage counsellor uh, about the areas of life that are breaking down for you at the moment. If there's abuse, well, friends, if there's abuse, you need to get help right away. Come and chat to one of us on the staff team as soon as you possibly can. In the West, we have a generation of men who want to live and are encouraged to live as perpetual children. It's the Peter Pan phenomenon, right? I will never grow up. And it's easy to aim to avoid responsibility rather than bearing it, to follow instead of leading in our homes, to want the benefits of married life while retaining the benefits of singleness. And so if we're men, we need to constantly be telling ourselves and one another to grow up. We need to be encouraging each other to grow up and take the responsibility that God has given us. Our families and our churches need us to lead. 
Our families and our churches need us to be striving to be Christ-like and not settle for being who we are now, but, but to step up into who God wants us to be. Which means Paul also says that leaders need to be blameless in character. Have a look there in verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, again, we need to understand what Paul's getting at here. It would be easy to think that leaders need to be perfect in each and every aspect of these areas. But, but I think what, what it's looking at here, again, is the trajectory of, the li- of their life. What is their reputation? So they're not overbearing. Are, are they thought of someone uh, as someone who, who is always mean or a bully? Not that they're never mean, but it's not their usual character. They're not quick-tempered, not to say that they have never gotten angry, but rather they're not known as someone who's likely to snap their carrot over something small or minor. Again, not given to drunkenness doesn't mean that they never drink alcohol, but it means that they're known as someone who's measured and self-controlled and wise in their alcohol intake. So being blameless is more about how someone is known. It's it's about how someone is thought of. What is their reputation? And a blameless person is someone who, well, if you heard a rumor about them, kind of snapping their carrot in the car park one day at church, your immediate response would be, well, that just seems, that doesn't sound like the person that I know. That seems out of character. They're the type of person when you throw mud, it just doesn't stick. Now, I'm going to pick on one of these aspects as we talk about this and talk about church leadership. And, and I think one of the things we need to kind of think about and keep addressing in our church is drunkenness. I don't hear a lot of chatter about people here at church getting drunk or anything like that. But one of the things that happened during COVID is that across Australia, people drank more at home than they normally would. In one study, 70% of Australians increased their alcohol intake during the month of, this, of the survey. Those kind of habits are really tough to break. And it's, it's actually those small incremental increases in alcohol consumption that leads to addiction, that lend itself to alcohol being a daily problem. So I want you to just ask yourself that hard question. Has drinking become a habitual crutch for you? Is it something you depend on too much? But I reckon one of the hardest things about these verses as someone who is in leadership here at church is the positive attributes of a leader. In many ways, the list of don'ts are kind of, they're kind of easier to obey. That is, they're, they're the behaviors I just need to avoid. But what's hard about the positive attributes is, well, how much of this do I need to have? How much of this do I need to exude? So have a look there in verse eight. He says, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, that's some kind of list, right? And I can tell you pretty easily that, well, I haven't been drunk since my early 20s, but do I love what is good? Am I always self-disciplined? How much of these attributes do I need in order to be in leadership? 
And I think that is where we need to keep coming back to the overall thrust of Titus. See, what we see in Titus chapter one is that it's the truth that leads to godliness. And so when I wonder, do I love what is good? The answer is not to just kind of run towards doing lots and lots of good works. The answer is to keep leaning into the gospel, to keep pressing into the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, because that is the things that will sustain you and grow you and overflow into a godly life. But again, I just want to pick up on one of these things uh, for all of us and, and, and not just for the leaders here at church. One of the, one of the things that I, that I think has happened and I feel has happened during COVID is that hospitality has kind of dropped off the radar. For years now, we haven't really had people into our homes very much. We've pretty much even done church just on our own or with our housemates or, 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 or in our family groups. And it's hard to kind of step out of that individualistic consumer mindset around church and remember that we're actually a family. And part of being a family is actually showing hospitality to one another. And hospitality is good. It's not always easy. Sometimes there are seasons of life where you just can't do it or you can't do it very often. But as a church family, we actually need to have our front doors open. We need to have them open here on a Sunday and be welcoming and loving to people who turn up who are new, but also in our homes. It's good for us. It's good for our leaders. This is why growth groups are such a great place because hospitality happens every single week of the year. So I want to encourage you to pray that God will help us to once again flex the hospitality muscle wherever possible. We need to be doing that work of getting off Zoom and spending time with people in people's homes. So leaders are to be blameless. We're to be blameless in the home, blameless in character, but also blameless in conviction. Have a look there in verse nine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. A, a leader is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So what is that message? Well, the same phrase is actually used in chapter three. And there's a bit of an outline of that message in chapter three. If you have a look at chapter three, verse three, it says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So what are the key aspects of that message? Well, it's salvation by grace, isn't it? We're, 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 just, we're not justified or redeemed or renewed because of our efforts because of our good works, or even because, you know, we've somehow fit the requirements for leadership in Titus chapter one, that's not the basis of our justification. No, the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared and he's saved us through the death of Jesus. It's by his mercy, not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy. So that is the trustworthy message that we're to hold to. But it's also more than that. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul actually urges Titus um, kind of as the, the, the chief among the elders and the overseers to teach 
how the gospel should shape our lives. So the trustworthy message is, is the gospel itself, but then the, the next concentric circle in the ring is, is, is how it should shape our lives. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, you, however, must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Or in the ESV, it says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then what he does is he goes out to list all of the things that Titus ought to teach the church in regards to godly living. And it's challenging. We'll see just how challenging it is next week. So the trustworthy message is the good news of Jesus. It's salvation by grace. But that truth, that doctrine actually leads to a transformed life. And Titus is to teach that message also. The leaders of God's church are to hold on to that trustworthy message also. It's not just sound doctrine, but it's sound doctrine applied. And you get a sense of this in verse 9. He says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, it's not enough for a church leader to kind of know and believe the right things. We're, we're actually meant to teach them and, and to help people to understand them and help others to grasp the deep truths of the Bible and to show how these, these truths are actually going to transform and shape our lives. And I raise this because, well, sometimes people think we're preaching too long. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Or, or sometimes people think, well, we just do too much Bible in our growth groups. But this is actually the bread and butter of ministry, right? You can have a 20-minute sermon, but you won't get fed. You can have topical preaching all year round, but you will never hear the breadth of God's wisdom to us in His Word. You can have community groups that just kind of gather to encourage each other and hang out, spend time with each other. But, but if there's no Word of God present, then what are you actually encouraging one another towards? This is something we really value here at Hunter Bible Church. We hold firmly to this conviction that the leaders of our church ought to be charged with this responsibility to encourage the church through sound doctrine. We want to be a church that doesn't just affirm sound doctrine, but where we, where we encourage people and, and we want to live it out and, and to love it more and more deeply every day. But the flip side of encouraging people in sound doctrine is refuting false teaching. What does it mean that church leaders are meant to refute people who oppose sound doctrine? Well, John Calvin in his commentary on Titus says that a pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off wolves and thieves. Now, before we get to the why, why this is actually necessary, it's helpful to just acknowledge that in our Western culture, we, we automatically find this, this idea incredibly difficult because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And so who am I to come in and tell you what your truth ought to be or to tell you that your truth is wrong? We, we kind of hate that idea, right? But this is actually what God calls us to do. He urges leaders of the church to refute those false ideologies, worldviews, gospels, and the life that comes out of that. So this is what he says, verse 9, An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine 
and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Right, so notice that that use of the word for at the beginning of verse 10. It's not for kicks. It's not in order to, to be a know-it-all that leaders are to refute false teaching. But the reason is, is that there's actually a threat here to the church. There's a threat to God's family here in Crete. So what was the threat? Well, one of the central problems was people who rejected authority and loved controversy. It's the opposite of what Paul wants in verse 5, right? Paul tells Titus to come and put in order and to bring order to what was chaotic and left unordered when these new churches sprung up through the preaching of the gospel, but they didn't have any leadership. And the rebellious person is the one who likes disorder, who goes and talks to this person and stirs up discontent and stretches the truth with that person. And they don't, they don't want to sit under leadership. They don't they don't want to listen to what other people have to say. They want to be a law unto themselves. They want, to, they want their ideas to be heard. They want their ideas to be known and, and, and they thrive on, on controversy. Paul's warning to us is this. He says, don't be self-willed. Don't think there's any virtue in independent thinking. Don't assume that you are the one who knows best, but actually be willing to sit under authority. Friends, we need people around us. We need the family of God. We need the leadership of the church, more, more mature Christians to lead us and to, and to help us in our Christian walk. Now, now, you might think, well, that's easy for me to say as I kind of get up here and, and, and tell you how good it is to sit under the leadership of Hunter Bible Church because I'm one of the leaders. And so, you know, of course it's good, right? But the reality is, is that I get to sit under leadership all the time. Every Sunday that I'm not preaching, I'm sitting where you are. I'm sitting under the preaching of God's Word. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes I'll hear something that challenges me and pushes me further on in my faith. And in that moment, I get the pleasure of sitting under the teaching of my pastors and my leaders as they open God's Word to me. And it actually goes... For a lot of things in church, there's lots of things that happen around Hunter Bible Church that don't necessarily run or go the way that I think might be the best way that they should happen. But being part of a team of leaders is saying, well, okay, we're actually giving you this responsibility. I'm going to sit under your responsibility, your leadership there. And, and yeah, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way, but it's actually not my call anymore. It's not my place. It's not that it's wrong or evil. I'll give you my opinion, but it's really just a preference that I have. You're the one who's got the role. You're the one who's got the responsibility. And so I will have that fierce conversation with you, but I will support you whatever you decide. And being part of God's family means doing that, sitting under leaderships. It means being part of the order. Now, I think under God, this is one of the reasons we've actually grown as a church. One of the growth limiting factors for churches are pastoral teams who just can't get on, who can't work together. And, and I love our team because ego never gets in the way. Now, Greg's been here for 23 years. Dave Allen's been here for 21, myself 17, Richard and Dave 14, Scott and DJ 9, 
Joe, I'm not quite sure, but she's been here for a long time as well. Jenny, she's been here longer than me. And, and we don't always agree. We often get frustrated with each other, but at the end of the day, we're happy to step back and say, Joko. And whatever you do, I won't just submit begrudgingly, but I'll support you in that decision. Please pray that we will keep doing that. It's one of the most lovely things, I think, about being a pastor of this church family, because in many different ways, we actually see you guys doing this all the time. It's wonderful to see. But in Crete, there's this rebellious group, mere talkers, and they were causing most of the issues and they were known as the circumcision group. Paul here refers to them in verse 10, in verse 14, he talks about Jewish myths and he's not, uh, he's kind of talking about a, a group within a group, but it seems from the context that th this was the majority group. This was the biggest group of the rebellious people in, in Crete. So why are they so problematic? Well, at the very least, it seems that they are actually applying aspects of the law of Moses, things like circumcision, that have been fulfilled in Jesus, and they are applying them to Gentile Christians. But they probably also had been adding their own codes of spiritual conduct or spiritual disciplines to ensure that these new believers were kept safe from things like worldliness and that they grew in holiness. In other words, these were just human commands, he calls them. If you like, it's a Jesus plus movement. These people said you had to be, you become a Christian by faith in Jesus, but you stay a Christian or you grow as a Christian or in order to be a good Christian or a proper Christian, you actually need to be circumcised. You need to put into action all of these human commands. And so that's the big problem in Crete. This is, where they were this is what they were teaching. That is why Paul wanted Titus to place leaders over every church, leaders who taught the truth of the gospel, leaders who lived these gospel-shaped lives and leaders who were willing to bring order by both teaching truth and refuting error. Now, what's the problem with circumcision and merely human commands? I mean, none of us really want to revert back to adult circumcision or anything like that, but, but what's really the big issue here? Because it's kind of full on what he says about these people. Have a look in verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And then in verse 15, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defied. They profess to know God, but, by, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's kind of pretty full on statements, right? What's, what's wrong with a little bit of legalism around the edges to prevent us to kind of from falling off the cliff and into worldliness? The circumcision group, they weren't the kind of people who were saying, you know, we're saved by grace and so now you can live however you want. So, so what was the big problem with it? Well, what Paul claims here is that legalism, Jesus plus movements, don't actually lead to godly living but they put a cap on godliness. How? Well, verse one, because it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And so whenever we add something to the gospel or take something away from the gospel, 
we actually slide into ungodliness. Because the gospel, the pure gospel, the gospel of grace, the fact that we're saved not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy, that is the thing that transforms us from the inside out. A number of years ago, uh, a fellow called Jordan Peterson wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life. Uh, it's mostly a common sense manual and Christians kind of flock to it because, well, because there's a lot of worldly wisdom in there, but, but also he used the Bible to back up some of the things that he said in his 12 Rules for Life. But 12 Rules for Life, whilst it may be helpful, you know, whilst there may be some good common sense ideas that are worth to adopt and listen to, they won't actually bring about Christ-likeness. And the danger of books like that, or even Christian books that give us strategies to remove sin in our lives, the danger is, is that we think that those rules are actually what's going to bring about Christ-likeness. But the irony is this, when we follow man-made rules, we actually put a limit on the demands of godliness. We just, we kind of squeeze out just how radical gospel transformation ought to be. And we remould the definition of godliness and we no longer uphold it as Christ-likeness, but the goal becomes just being less like our culture in a few different ways. Often Christian maturity is exchanged for Things like not sleeping around or not looking at porn and not getting drunk or reading the Bible at home or turning up to Bible study. And that's a step forward, right? <laughs> but that is shortchanging the transformative work of the Spirit. There's no shortcuts to godliness. It's not a matter of pinning up some rules, reading them, keeping them, chanting them to yourself. That will always fall short. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, adding rules to your life won't bring about long-lasting change because everything in this book, everything in this book hangs off its introduction. That tells us that it's the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, that leads to godliness. Later on, he's going to speak about the grace of God in chapter two, that offers salvation and it actually teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live these self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. See, see, friends, grace is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. It's actually the fuel for the rest of your Christian life. What the church needs today, what the church needed in Crete is men and women Leaders, teenagers, mums and dads, youth leaders, growth group leaders, kids church leaders, mag team members, connect team members, all sorts of people engaged in ministry and who hold fast to the trustworthy message that has been passed down. People who are committed to the truth of this gospel message and whose lives are shaped and changed by that news. 
why don't I pray that God would equip us with leaders who love the truth and live the truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Titus and it shows us how we can bring order into our church. It shows us what type of leader we're looking for. It helps us to see that the things that matter are conviction and character. Father, we pray that we would love those things, that we would run towards those things. Help us to love the truth, the trustworthy message that has been passed down and help us not to err from that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.